The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. We are doing a live stream on my phone because the hotel Wi-Fi here is not awesome. I am at a hotel in the, the Chicago area building for our conference. So welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. The Wi-Fi here isn't awesome, so I need the cell phone. So that's how we're doing it. So no StreamYard. Not using the StreamYard tonight. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'm just kind of doing it on my phone. Um, that's how it's going. Uh, so welcome, everybody. So glad to have you with us here tonight. Uh, hit the like button. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the notifications bell. Uh, this is the old-fashioned way. Remember when we used to do them this way? Back in the day when I would sit in front of my lovely bookshelf and we would do them once a week before the COVID stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, before all of that, um, yeah, I remember I used to used to just, uh, just sit in front of my phone and we used to do it this way, like the good old days, right? When I just used to sit here and, and do it on my phone. Yeah, those were the good old days. But now, uh, you know, now we're on StreamYard, and now we're all fancy, and we have our own think tank. Man, shout out to everyone who's been here since the beginning. Shout out to everyone who's been part of this community for so long. You're an old, old, longtime member uh, of this group. Um, um, yeah, um, so welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Um you know, so glad to be here with all of you. So glad to be here. Um, it's going to be awesome. So glad to be here. So, uh, like I said, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Uh, the way these streams tend to work, I tend to give my opening remarks, uh, and then they are followed uh, by a roll call where I call you all out as I see you, names and locations, names and locations. That's how we do it. And then from there, I answer Super Chat questions for the rest of the night. Not sure how long tonight's stream will go, um, but uh, it'll go for at least a while. Uh, it'll go for a bit. Um, and then uh, after that, uh, after that, we will uh, answer Super Chats, and that's how we're going to do things. So if you have something you want me to talk about in the second half of the show, shoot me one of those Super Chats. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess the way we do things, I just got to reply to a message here. I apologize, but it's kind of a message. Um, I'm just going to reply to a quick message someone sent me. Uh, and then from there, I'll, I'll jump into my opening remarks. I'll do my opening remarks. Um, and then from there, I will, uh, I will do the roll call, call people out as I see them, names and locations. And then from there, uh, we will uh, we will do um, at that point we will do uh, there you know there we go there we go all right I sent a message to someone who needed to have a message and there we go all right okie dokie so now that i've sent that message uh i'll just jump into it so welcome everybody uh nancy pelosi is not my favorite person all right not my favorite person and you know, we come at things from a Marxist perspective. We're talking about socialism and anti-imperialism. We stand with the Belt and Road Initiative of China. We're excited about the Eurasian Economic Union. We like the Bolivarian bloc uh, of Latin America. We like the BRICS. We're really excited about countries rising up from poverty. And we like Iran and the axis of resistance in the Middle East. And and, you know, we, that's our community here. We have this anti-imperialist perspective. However, you know, we don't want to live in a bubble. We don't want to live in a bubble and only talk to people that have this kind of perspective. We don't want to do that because uh, if we do that, then we're just going to be completely isolated. So there's a way we can talk about this Taiwan bullshit. There's a way we can talk about it that average people, I think, could agree with it. And the way to talk about it is this. Hunger 
in the United States is at an all-time high in the past recent years. Uh, you know, there is a food bank in New Jersey that just closed down. South New Jersey, South Jersey Food Bank just closed down because they ran out of food. Gas prices are squeezing working families. A lot of that is related to the confrontation in Ukraine, where the United States is arming this fanatically anti-Russian government in Kiev, and the people of the eastern regions have declared independence, and so because of that, uh, Russia is moving in to protect the peoples in the eastern regions, this conflict that's happening in Ukraine. Regardless, you know, people aren't going to know all the facts. The result of this conflict has been driving food prices up, driving the costs of, uh, of gas up. Uh, you know, uh, there's, there's food shortages in Africa because of the, the trouble with grain being exported from Ukraine and being exported from Russia. It's bad. And our economy is suffering. It's bad. Our economy is suffering. Right now in the United States, things are not doing too well. And it's largely because of the fact that we are in a situation where the confrontation with a major country, Russia, is not having a good impact. So if the circumstances are like this, right? Again, forget the anti-imperialism, forget all of that. Just, just the situation that we're in in the country. Why would now be the time to piss off the second largest economy in the world. Of all the times, let's say you really believe in Taiwan sovereignty, blah, blah, blah. Why now? Could you think of a worse possible time to piss off the second largest economy in the world? Right now, we need to be trading with China. We need to be doing business over here. We need the price of food to go down. We need the price of gas to go down. We need, you know, this is not the time to be making more of an enemy out of China from just a basic pragmatic sense. It doesn't help. It, it, it's not doing anything good for America from a basic pragmatic sense. And you can explain this to your friends. You can explain this to your coworkers. Look at how bad things are in the United States. When I was at Occupy Wall Street, they had a chant they did that I really don't like. It's not a good chant. Not a good chant. Um, you know, but they would chant, shit's fucked up. Shit's fucked up and bullshit. Shit's fucked up. Shit's fucked up and bullshit. Shit's fucked up. Shit's fucked up and bullshit. Well, that is a correct sentiment. For the moment that we're in, shit's fucked up in America. Shit's fucked up and bullshit. Uh, the economy of the United States of America ain't doing too well right now. Lots of working class communities are suffering. Water's not being properly purified. Bridges are not being properly secured. Uh, you know, we've got a food crisis, a, a, a run on the food banks. It's not the time to do this. Our leaders need to be focusing on fixing the high gas prices, fixing the cost of food, fixing the crumbling infrastructure of the neighborhoods, and not trying to piss off China. I mean, it just, it's a matter of basic priorities. Your house is on fire. Do you then run to the neighbor's house and say, you're an asshole, fight with me, neighbor? No, you put out the fire in your own house. And once the fire in your own house has been put out, once everyone in your own family has been taken care of, then, if you got a dispute with your neighbor, you go across the street and argue with your neighbor. But you don't go have a fight with your neighbor next door when your house is on fire. It doesn't make sense. This is just something that anybody who genuinely loves their country, loves America, loves their community, loves their neighborhood, is worried about police brutality, is worried about uh, poverty, is worried about the opioid epidemic, anybody who has just a basic sense of community should be like, what the fuck is Nancy Pelosi doing? Get your ass out of Taiwan and get your ass back to Washington, D.C. and pass some goddamn legislation to feed the hungry children of South Jersey. You know, I mean, I mean, I, you know, do something to help the, the families in Chicago that are struggling right now. You know, that should be the priority. Um, and, uh, 
You know, I, 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 you don't have to be a communist to understand this. You don't have to be a Marxist. You don't have to be a socialist. You don't have to be a, a, a tanky, an ideological ML. This is just kind of common sense. Just pretty basic stuff. What Nancy Pelosi is doing right now, escalating. We're already having a crisis with a major country, Russia. Now she wants to go have a crisis with another major country. Um, not good. Not good. And, and, we can agitate about this, and we can, we can tell our coworkers about this. And one thing you'll notice is that nobody seems to be saying this in U.S. media. You know, on, on MSNBC, uh, they, are, they are supporting it. On Fox News, they are supporting it. Uh, I mean, it's just universal. Everyone's saying how brave. It's like, no, now is not the time to provoke World War III. Not the time to provoke World War III. Not the time to do that. Not the time to do that. So, you know, if you want to talk about a mass line, this is a mass line that people can understand. That it doesn't benefit America's working families to be escalating tensions in the Straits of Taiwan right now. It just doesn't, does not benefit average Americans. It doesn't do that. Doesn't do that. Um, now, you know, if you want to talk to the more advanced people, so to people that, that might be able to get it a little bit more, then you can explain to them why Taiwan is so important to the people of China. And that's an important thing for people to understand. It's hard for people to understand because we're in a very different country. We're in a very different culture, a different history, and it's very hard for people to understand. But for those who want to hear you, don't, don't bother talking to somebody who doesn't want to hear it. Don't throw your pearls before swine. If somebody doesn't want to hear it, there's no point in trying to tell them this. If somebody does want to hear it, if someone's actually open to learning, you can explain to them why the Taiwan issue is so important to China. And the reason is this. That if you go back to 1949, you go back to the 20th century, the early parts of the 20th century, China used to be one of the poorest countries in the world. Extreme poverty, malnutrition deaths all the time, famines that killed millions of people and tens of millions of people happening routinely. Uh, Shanghai was a center of child prostitution where, you know, Chinese families, because they didn't want their children to starve, would be forced into a situation where in order to have the, make sure their children could eat, they'd sell them into prostitution, and these, these Shanghai child prostitution houses were set up. Uh, you know, you had the, the opioid epidemic, uh, you, know, you know, which, you know, you know, opium poppies were being grown. Part of the reason they had so many famines was because fields that should have been growing food were growing opium poppies for the British Empire and the drug trade, which was, which was based out of Shanghai and the criminal organizations. Uh, extreme amounts of poverty. 1928, the great American journalist Edgar Snow, he visited China. And he saw with his own eyes a famine. People were starving and they were hungry. And the reason they were hungry was because China did not have a strong central government that could coordinate relief. The Republic of China, the government that had emerged, was weak. It was very, very weak. And, uh, you know, there was a famine in one province. They didn't have the ability to mobilize food, you know, from another province to be sent. And in fact, they didn't even have control over the whole country. There were these warlords who controlled big sections of the country that didn't even answer to the central government. Plus, Hong Kong was owned by the British. Plus, Tibet was run by a feudal monarch called the Dalai Lama. Plus, uh, in the Uyghur regions, you had different Islamic warlords. Um, and China was impoverished. They call it the century of humiliation, where a great civilization, 5,000 years old, was kept in this state of chronic underdevelopment and chronic poverty by the domination of Western capitalism. And when they had emperors who tried to resist Western capitalism, the British sent their military twice to wage what they called the Opium Wars to force China to accept free trade neoliberal economics, right? And so, so every time China erected a government that would stand up for the Chinese people, the British sent their military in to crush them. 1901, the United States sent in the, the Boxers, the Boxer Rebellion, they were called. There's a group of Chinese nationalists called the Boxers. Uh, you know, they were, they were having an uprising, so the USA sent their military in to crush them. And they call it the century of humiliation. And what kept China poor 
was that it was divided. Tibet was divided from the mainland. Hong Kong was divided. Uh, it was divided. That's what kept China poor. You know, the warlords, you didn't have a strong central government and people were starving. So the Chinese Communist Party, when they took power, they said, we are never going to deal with this shit again. We are never going to deal with this, this kind of situation again. We are going to make China great again. We are going to make China great again. We're going to make China a strong country. So what did they do? They unified the country. That is what they did. They unified the country. And they said, you know, they, they, they had the Tibet Civil War where the peasants... You know, they made Tibet an autonomous region. They let the Dalai Lama stay in power. But then the peasantry, the poor peasants, revolted against the landlords. The serfs of Tibet rose up, and the Chinese government supported them, and, and Tibet was brought into China. And so the United States armed uh, the Dalai Lama's brother and relatives and airdropped all kinds of weapons. You had the Tibet Civil War. 500,000 people died in the Tibet Civil War, uh, you know, when China fought for Tibet. Uh, and then you also had a situation where, you know, in the Korean War, the USA was attacking North Korea, China's ally, right on their border. So China sent millions of soldiers into North Korea to drive the United States out. And China has said, we will never have that situation where China is divided again. We are going to have one China. And that one China will include different oppressed nationalities. It'll include Uyghurs. It will include Tibetans. It will include Hong Kong. And it will include Taiwan. Because after the Chinese Revolution, the people who lost the nationalist KMT party, they fled to Taiwan and they kept their government intact. They claimed that Taiwan was the real China, the Republic of China, as opposed to the Communist People's Republic. And the KMT set up shop on Taiwan. And the U.S. government for a long time recognized the KMT government on Taiwan, the Republic of China, as being the real representative of the whole China, or the whole of China. And uh, because of that, because of that situation, uh, you know, you had the United States and China at odds with each other because China said, look, you're recognizing this little island as being the representative of the whole country. And that government on that island, Chiang Kai-shek, is illegitimate, right? And he's claiming that this little island of Taiwan represents the whole Chinese mainland. But then... When Jimmy Carter opened up trade with China, at that point, at that point, when Jimmy Carter opened up trade with China, part of the demand on the part of China was that China said, "Okay, if you're gonna, if you're gonna, we're gonna trade with you. We're gonna let American businesses set up shop in China. We're gonna do that. You can't recognize both the government on Taiwan." and us. you got to pick one. Either you're with us or you're with the government on Taiwan. And so the USA conferred recognition. It closed its embassy on Taiwan. All right. Burmese Road to Socialism. Writing it down. Closed its embassy on Taiwan. And it opened an embassy on the mainland in Beijing. And that's what China has demanded. They said, we want one China. We have fought for one China. We consider the island of Taiwan to be part of China. Taiwan considers itself to be part of China. The actual legal name of the country is the Republic of China. And because of that, that's how it's going to work. And so the United States recognized the People's Republic as being the government of China. And now... The United States is mad at China. Why? Because China makes better cell phones than America does, right? Huawei Technologies is going to put Apple out of business because they make such damn good phones. They're cheaper phones. They're, they're, um, they're, they're, they're faster. They're just better phones altogether. Why? Because China produces half the steel in the world. Because China is leading the world uh, when it comes to computer technology and advancements. No, they didn't steal it all from the United States. They have a lot of technological breakthroughs. China's done amazing stuff uh, in terms of, of you know, technological breakthroughs. They're, China is pushing for fusion energy. China's space program is doing amazing stuff, you know, having missions that reach the far side of, of the moon, etc. 
And the United States sees China as a competitor. And because we've got leaders in Washington, D.C. who view politics in terms of a zero-sum game, where some countries can only gain at the expense of other countries, instead of teaming up with China, instead of aligning with China, U.S. leaders have decided, oh, China's rising, we've got to stop that, because if China rises, they're going to push us off the global stage. Wall Street is angry that China is no longer their playground. It's not what it was during the opium wars. So because of that, because of that, they're trying to mess with China. And they're trying to attack China. And so Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan is basically sending a message that the USA, on some level, doesn't recognize Taiwan to be part of China. She didn't get permission from the People's Republic of China to go to Taiwan. She didn't get permission to go there. And so as a result of that, this is a high-level U.S. official, the Speaker of the House, third in line to be president, making a statement that is a big diss at China. And China's going to have to respond. Because the whole reason that the Communist Party of China has credibility with the Chinese public is because of the fact that they've created one China. So if a great power like the United States or the British or the French or the Germans is to diss them like this, then you have to prove to the Chinese people that they're not going to take it. Because, because the Chinese Communist Party has said we've created one China. We've created one China. And if the Chinese Communist Party isn't delivering on that, and they're not holding China together, they're not pushing out the Western powers that kept China divided, then they're going to lose their credibility. And so the Chinese Communist Party, in order to keep the consent of the governed, in order to keep the faith of the Chinese public, it has to respond, it has to retaliate against what Nancy Pelosi did. And of course, when they do, we're going to hear, oh, awful China. Oh, how dare they try to tell America where it can send its people. How dare they violate the rights of Taiwan. You don't get it. You don't get it. You just don't get it. This is an attack on the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party and what they have fought for for over 100 years. Chinese Communist Party was formed with 21 members in the basement of a women's dormitory at a college in the French concession of Shanghai, the area of Shanghai that was under the colonial control of the French. Mao and 12 other people. There were 60 members originally total, you know, like 13 people, met in the basement of a women's dormitory. It was like 20 people. They started having the meetings of the Chinese Communist Party. Then they noticed that they were being followed by the police. And so they said, shit, we don't want the police to ruin our meeting. So they went to a lake. And they got a boat. And they went out on the boat. And they finished their meeting. And that's how the Chinese Communist Party was founded. And now the Chinese Communist Party has 90 million members. 90 million members. Hold on, writing it down, writing it down. Ninety billion members, a whole country lifted up, millions of lives changed. And, you know, the sad thing is, some people, they don't seem to get why that's important. Ninety-five million members, says class analysis. Some people, they just don't understand why that might matter. You know, it is the, the ultimate act of privilege. These people who sit there and they're like, okay, fine. Mao came in and he had his barefoot doctors program and millions and millions of people who had never seen a doctor before in their lives got medical treatment. Yeah, well, who cares about that? 
right? And, you know, millions of people who never would have had a chance to learn to read and write suddenly went to schools that the Chinese Communist Party had created. Oh, who cares about that? That doesn't matter. Oh, and, you know, because of the Chinese Communist Party, area people got electricity. And millions of people who never would have had electricity and running water got it. Oh, that doesn't matter. I'm rich. I live in Beverly Hills. I don't care about that. Oh, I don't want the inferior inferior people of China to have electrification. Oh, it's fascism. Oh. You know, that's the reality, right? That what the Chinese Communist Party has achieved, what China used to be, and what China is now, is a firm testament to the fact that socialism, a system where the banks and the factories, the major industries, are organized to serve public good, Western sources, and not the profits of a wealthy few. I think that that's generally pretty admirable. And it takes it takes a really disgusting, class-privileged person to look at everything the Chinese Communist Party has achieved and just write it off because it doesn't fit your video game fantasy of worker co-op co land. Um, you know? I mean, it, it, it's really shocking. You look at so many corners of the world today that are still deeply impoverished because of Western capitalism. You know, take a look at Guatemala. Take a look at Honduras. You know, you know, take a look at so many parts of Africa where Wall Street has been investing for years and the people there are still impoverished. You know, you go to Nigeria, the top oil exporting country on the African continent, Milosevic. And they're producing more oil. They're exporting more oil than any other country in Africa. But yet the people there have a really low life expectancy, really low rate of literacy. You know, go and read the statistics for yourself. Go and read the CIA World Factbook. Now, writing it down. Go and read it for yourself. All right? I mean, what the Chinese Communist Party has achieved is tremendous. It's, it's amazingly tremendous. And the same thing, you know, for the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union defeated Hitler. They raised millions of people up from poverty. They invented space travel. They electrified the whole country. The whole world was in awe of what Stalin was accomplishing with the five-year economic plans. Read what Einstein wrote. Read what was written by so many scholars. The, the Soviet Union was booming during the 1930s, while the rest of the world was having a Great Depression. They built that country up. The biggest hydroelectrical power plant in the world, the Dnieper Dam, was built in Ukraine. Uh, you know, they had the biggest steel industry of any country in the world. You know, people who lived in huts were suddenly living in modern apartment buildings. New universities were constructed. They made some of the best films in the world at the time. Sergei Eisenstein, the father of the montage, you know, was making breakthroughs in film that had never been achieved before. The, the breakthroughs in, in music, Shostakovich and his music was an amazing breakthrough. The world was in awe of it. Their achievements in the arts, in gymnastics, their achievements in ballet. I mean, it was like the Soviet Union was this, this country that was on fire. It was speeding ahead. It was just speeding ahead and developing and rapidly advancing in the face of what they knew was an oncoming invasion by the a hostile power, all while they're building a global united front against fascism. Um, you know, it was utterly, utterly amazing what the Soviet Union did. Um, you could say the same for Cuba, you know, what Cuba has accomplished. You know, the fact that this small island uh, is, at this point, the, uh, you know, the country with the highest life expectancy in Latin America. It's, it's got a rate of infant mortality and a rate of, of literacy uh, that, is, that is the envy of most Western countries, providing public health for the people known all over the world for their literacy volunteers and for their, um, for their volunteers in, in terms of the medical field. Cuba, Cuba this small island, um, you know, 
this small island. Writing it down. This small island was socialism. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's really amazing what socialism has achieved. And the Chinese Communist Party should, um, should really be um, an institution that we should admire. And that's why Taiwan is so important to them. And I, I mean, so again, for people who may not be fully on board Writing it down. For people who may not be able to hear all of that, for people who may not be able to hear all of that, you know, stick to just the basic why now? Why wreck our economy? Why make us a new enemy when Americans are starving? Stick to that. But for those who are willing to hear it, for those who are willing to understand why this is so important, you can explain it to them, right? And, and you know, U.S. media is so unbelievably ridiculous at this point. Um, what I think is kind of funny, I'll just point this out, is that uh, the fake left and the fake right both accuse each other of being on the other side. Have you noticed this? It's, it's the most insane thing. It shows how much the Internet really fucks with people's minds. Um, you know, uh, but uh, on the right wing, they all think that Biden and the Democrats and Antifa are all supporting China. I mean, it's Nancy Pelosi, Democrat, who's going to China. Uh, it's Joe Biden, Democrat, who's letting her do it. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's the Democratic Party that is pushing this. But they all think, nope, the, the Democrats are all communists because communism is bad. They all, they're all communists. Communism is bad. Uh, and they, on the right, they all seem to think that somehow the Democrats are all communists and they all support China. Well, the Democrats don't support China. The synthetic left doesn't support China. Meanwhile, the synthetic left, the Jacobin crowd, the DSA people, they all seem to think that Trump and his people are supporting China right now. They all seem to think that, oh, China is fascist because they're fascist because I don't hear anyone on Chinese TV ever mention their, their pronouns. And so China must be fascist. Um, you know, I heard that there's people in China that like, uh, that they, 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 they like salute a flag and that's totally like reactionary. And, and so China is like Nazi and, and China is Nazi and, and, and Russia is Nazi and Venezuela is Nazi uh, because it scares me because they have like a military and they march and wear military uniforms. And I, that's triggering and and they don't mention pronouns and 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 so china and russia are are nazi they're fascist and donald trump is also fascist and so i think that china and russia and trump are all working together no 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 wrong 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 the Republicans, Ron DeSantis, all of those people are pushing harder against China than you would believe. The synthetic left is lying to you and claiming that the Democrats or that the Republicans are in bed with China. The synthetic right is lying to you and claiming that the, you know, that the Democrats are in bed with China. They're not in bed with China. They aren't in bed with China, right? China is a country that has broken free from the domination of Western capitalism. China is a country that is moving on an independent course of development. And the U.S. imperialists, they can't control China anymore. They've lost control. They've lost control of their markets. And that's the situation we're in. So I just wanted to get that observation out of the way, off my chest. Anyhow, folks, um, this isn't going to be the longest live stream I've ever done. Um, but I guess I'll just quickly mention, for those of you who aren't aware, I'm sure... Everyone here knows, but for those who don't know, I will be speaking at our very, very, very important event that is happening right now. Uh, it's happening on August 6th, on Saturday. We are having our great event, Unite Against the Imperialists. Tara Reid, uh, the survivor of, of Joe Biden, uh, you know, she is going to be speaking publicly. Uh, you know, we're going to be hearing from 
from Garland Nixon, the great radio host. Uh, uh, Paul, my good friend, the musician, is going to be playing music. Uh, Jesse Jett, the musician, will also be there. Um, in addition to that, uh, there'll be various friends and allies of the Center for Political Innovation, people from the People's Party, from the Party of Communists, from the Schiller Institute, from the Alex Saab Freedom Committee. It's going to be an awesome event in Deerfield, Illinois, at the Hyatt Plaza Hotel. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. So I hope that you all can make it. I really hope you could, you all can make, make it. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, just be there. Uh, we're going to ask a donation at the door, uh, if you can. Uh, it's going to be a great. Doors open at 1 p.m. Uh, Unite Against the Imperialists, 1 p.m., Deerfield Hyatt Hotel. Be there. Please be there. Now, if you can't make it, uh, one thing you could do that would really help us out is donate. Because we have already got a ton of people here to help make this event happen. I mean, I, I people are already piling in. I was at the Airbnb uh, yesterday, and it's like, it's packed full of people. We had to get another Airbnb on the other side of town. You know, um, there's other people there. And... Uh, and we've got, you know, we got a couple hotel rooms where people are staying. And, you know, we are making this happen, but it's difficult. It is difficult, folks. It is not easy, right? There's a lot of people who really believe in the Center for Political Innovation, you know, who really believe in what we are doing, are not just giving giving their, their money, but giving their time. Uh, you know, we got people here, there's people who came in from Texas that are here sleeping on the floor in sleeping bags in an Airbnb. Uh, you know, we got people, people who came in from Georgia. We got people who, who are coming in from California. They're not here yet. People are piling in one after another. People are piling in and we're accommodating all these folks. But um, and it's good. And, you know, we're going to you know, we're going to have an amazing opening ceremony uh, at this event. And, you know, I mean, it's going to be awesome. And the people from out of town, it's like a bonding experience. People talk communism with each other. They get to know each other. They've been doing outreach. Just today, they actually went to a great demonstration. Uh, or it was yesterday. There was a demonstration of survivors of torture uh, at Menard Prison. Um, and uh, it's go to Main Trend News. We got the news release on there. Um, and uh, they were there at that. And uh, it's going to be an awesome, awesome conference. Uh, you know, so it's going to be great. So if you can't make it, if for some reason you just can't be there, um, if you can't make it, one way that you can help out um, is you can send us a donation, which is very easy. Uh, if you want to send us a donation, all you have to do is get Cash App and send us a donation to dollar sign CPI events on Cash App. Easy. Or if you're not comfortable using Cash App, if you would like to do something else, you can also, you can also, um, uh, sorry about that. You can also, if you don't want to use Cash App, you can Zell it to me. You can just Zell me. Uh, you can Zell me at uh, my, my Gmail, calebmoppin at gmail.com on Zell, right? I'm in Zell, on Zell. If you have Zell with your bank, if you have online banking, you just go where it says Zell. Zell, and you just type, you know, Caleb Moppin at Gmail, that's me, and you can just shoot me, shoot me a donation. Uh, so that's another way you can help me out. Um, but we're trying to accommodate everyone who's here. Uh, we have racked up quite a few expenses to do this conference, but it's worth it. It is worth it. It is absolutely worth it what we are doing. Um, and I must say, the people here are awesome. You know, Robert just got here tonight, drove all the way from Texas. He is awesome. I mean, he is he is really great. I just saw Robert, and Lily has been working her butt off. Thank you, Gavin, for the super chat. W Lily has been working her butt off, coordinating the Airbnb and coordinating everything. Uh, Gavin's here. Uh, love you, Gavin. Gavin, it should be on the CPI front page, though, not on the main trend. Very good. Gavin's here. Uh, Gavin came in from Southern Illinois, and uh, you know, and we got we got David here, the founder of San Angelo Solidarity. He came into town. Elizabeth came in from Washington D.C., and uh, Tristan's here. And oh man, it's it's great. I, I mean, I couldn't be happier. Um, you know, there's a guy named Simon who's come in. Uh, you know, come into town, and oh man, I I'm gonna forget somebody, and I'm gonna be a jackass for forgetting them. I'm going to feel like a jackass for forgetting Charlotte. Char Char Darling is here, amazing member of our community. She arrived recently. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, and more people are coming in, right? And I, I hope I didn't forget anybody, but I'm sure I did because there's a lot of people coming in for this, and they're all loved. They really are. I mean, we are building a really powerful community here. And, I mean, I mean, oh, it's going to be awesome, folks. Uh, you know, one of the things, when people come in, we're going to have a card for Julian Assange. Uh, a, a card, like a big card that we're going to fold up and mail to Julian Assange, right, that everyone's going to sign. And that's going to be awesome. And we're going to, I mean, you you have no idea. This isn't just going to be a conference where people just walk in and there's chairs and they wait for speech after speech after speech. No, 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 no. That is not what we are doing. Oh, my God. This is going to be something special. Wait until you walk into the room on on Saturday. I mean, the, the music that we've got, the displays that we have got setting up, the program that we have scheduled, this is gonna be, this is gonna be an event that's gonna knock your socks off, right? Uh, if you think this is just gonna be, you know, some, you know, some, uh, you know, you know, bunch of, bunch of lefties, you know, you know, putting on silly costumes and giving Mao speeches or something, no, it will not be that. My friend, this is going to be something really, really special at the Hyatt Regency Deerfield. So if you can make it, um, that would be really, really great. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's going to be really, really awesome. Like I said, donations appreciated. It helps us get through uh, the expenses that we're dealing with. Best way to hit us up is Cash App. Second best way to hit us up is Zelle. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, uh, there you go. Uh, that's kind of the situation with that. So, you know, glad... Glad that you all are going to be there. Glad that folks are helping us out. Glad that we are pulling this off and making it happen. Glad that our vision is becoming a reality. Um, yeah, so now I'm going to do the roll call where I call you all out as I see you. Names and locations. Names and and locations. FDR a communist? Of course he wasn't, but I'll, I'll answer that. Names and locations. And then I'll start answering super chat questions. We've got Ryan in Oakland, Jason, ha ha ha, uh, Baltimore, Mark in Utica, New York. We got Elias from Wisconsin. We got Gavin. Gavin is in Illinois here. We got Swine Class in Baltimore. We got Mark. We got Rice from Adelaide, Australia. We got Moscow, Russia. Mark in Tacoma, Washington. Mike in West Virginia. Love Blind Date in New York. Phil from Miami. Jason Hunt in Chicago. Bergen County, New Jersey is with us. Cedar Park, Texas. Colin in Greensboro. Heidi in Scotland. Auckland, New Zealand. Marissa and Desiree from Washington. Shout out to you guys. David Muller from Columbia, Illinois. Falun Gong Lies Matter. Nate in Chicago. Northern Virginia. Patrick from Rhode Island. Kelly in Maine. Singapore. Stephen Ann in Georgia. Brad in St. Louis. Dave in the Upper Pen Peninsula. St. David's, Bermuda. Los Angeles. Riverside County. Simon, Tristan, Gavin watching together. Beautiful, beautiful stuff, beautiful stuff. On the spot, Clinton from London, Allen in Chicago, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Richard F. in Woodland, California, Nyack, New York, Georgetown, Texas, DJ Design, Cleveland Pirate, Alex, good stuff, Matt in Denver, Bob Troy in Wells, Maine, Dayton, Ohio, East of Finland, someone's at East of Finland, so there we go. Poor little Finland. All right, all right, Mark. Mark from California is watching. Briggy from Los Angeles is watching. Nidden in Baltimore. There we go. Is there a Bay Area CPI? Says Jenny Morris. Yes, there is. Get in touch with Ryan. Class analysis. Albert Kirky. Matt. John. Lockport, New York. Welcome, 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 welcome. All righty. All right. Oh, Kieran from San Diego is with us. Shout out to you, Kieran. Always good to have you here. Temple City, California. Kerala, Micah in Las Vegas is with us. Good stuff. Good stuff. So the first question I've been asked is about the Burmese road to socialism. Uh, there was a military junta that was running Burma for a while, and that military junta was aligned with China against the Soviet Union. They were backed by the United States and aligned with China. They were against the Soviet Union. They were part of the non-aligned movement, and that military junta... I at one point put forward their ideology as being the Burmese road to socialism. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know much about it. It looks to me like it was a kind of military Bonapartist state 
that maybe espoused some socialistic uh, principles, but I, I don't ever understand Burma to have been a fully socialist country. Uh, my understanding is that it was it was kind of a it was kind of like Peronism in Argentina. Uh, it was kind of like Park Chung Hee in South Korea. Kind of like uh, the system that they have in Singapore. Uh, it was it was an authoritarian state where there was military control over the economy to stabilize the economy for one section of the ruling class. Uh, Bonapartism. Um, that's my understanding of what the Burmese road to socialism was, uh, but I could be wrong, right? And I do know that now the Myanmar government is China-aligned, and it is the same military that developed during the period where they had the Burmese road to socialism. So, you know, it's possible, uh, you know, that, that, that there could have been some kind of change in property relations, but my understanding is that Burmese road to socialism was put in a different category. It was not considered to be part of, like, the Baath countries, it was not considered to be like, uh, you know, like Bolivarianism or the African socialism of Kwame Nkrumah. It was considered to be a kind of bourgeois nationalist uh, military state um, and that their understanding of socialism was very much in line with the second international, kind of like how, you know, Ben, ben Ali, uh, the leader of Tunisia, he was not a socialist, but he, his party espoused vaguely some form of socialism. Uh, in Egypt, uh, you know, obviously Abdul Nasser, Gamal Abdul Nasser was definitely a socialist, but the, his successors in the Egyptian military, Hosni Mubarak, was definitely not. He was, a, he was a social democrat who was aligned with the imperialists but had populistic, you know, espoused populistic ideas. That's my understanding, that the Burmese road to socialism was much like the, the Asian tiger countries. That's my understanding of it. Uh, next question. All right. Oh, Benjamin Rubenstein is with us. Shout out to you, Benjamin. What if China never became revisionist? What does that mean? Revisionist. You know, I mean, I mean, what does that mean? I mean, I, I mean, you know, this person is asking, what if China never became revisionist? What I mean, what does that mean? What do you mean they became revisionist? Right? What are, what are you what are you talking about? I'm sorry. They lifted millions of people out of poverty. Uh, they. They develop their economy. Uh, they have a communist party in power. Five-year economic plans. Um, I don't. I don't see them as revisionist. I know that there are differences within the Chinese Communist Party. I know that um, you know the Mao era and the Cultural Revolution is considered overwhelmingly by the Chinese Communist Party to have been a huge mistake. Um, you know. Uh, you know. I know that. Uh, you know. Deng Xiaoping. You know, he said, poverty is not socialism, but to be rich is glorious. He went back to the basics of Marxism, that the, the basis for breaking down class divisions and inequality is abundance and eradicating scarcity. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what you're getting at there. What if China became revision? I, I don't know what you're getting at. Western sources on Tibetan slavery. One of the best Western sources on the situation in Tibet and how the Tibetan revolution was carried out um, and how the feudal system in Tibet was defeated, uh, is W.E.B. Du Bois. W.E.B. Du Bois is one of the most well-respected African-American scholars. He wrote The Souls of Black Folk, very highly respected black intellectual, W.E.B. Du Bois. And W.E.B. Du Bois went to Tibet when the communists were leading the serfs of Tibet to break their chains and be free. And he spoke about it. You can listen to audio recordings of W.E.B. Du Bois describing what he saw in Tibet, how the Tibetan people were winning their freedom. So um, there you go. I mean, if you want a source on Tibetan slavery, check out W.E.B. Du Bois. Another writer that I do appreciate is Anna Louise Strong. Anna Louise Strong, an amazing journalist from Seattle. She wrote The Stalin Era. Uh, she wrote a number of amazing books about the Soviet Union, about communism. And she wrote When the Serfs Stood Up in Tibet. That is one of her books from the 1950s. When the Serfs Stood Up in Tibet. It is a great book describing uh, the Tibetan people and their struggle, the Tibetan civil war that was imposed on China by the United States, etc. So those are my two recommendations. W.E.B. Du Bois and Anna Louise Strong. Milosevic. Milosevic was the leader of Yugoslavia, uh, socialist Yugoslavia at the very end. As Yugoslavia was breaking apart, he became the leader of Serbia. He was the leader of Serbia. Um, I don't quite know what to say about him other than that. Uh, he was charged with you know, committing genocide. 
the International Criminal Tribunal in Yugoslavia, and he died in custody. And after, he, after his death, uh, the United Nations and other sources confirmed that there was no genocide in Yugoslavia. There, may, there were certainly crimes committed in a war. There are war crimes committed by different sides in a war. But the allegation that he was conducting a genocide against ethnic Albanians, uh, the UN and other sources, after his death, looked into it and said, eh, not true. Right? And I'm sorry, you know, again, you're saying, oh, Caleb, you do not know. I'm just telling you, they looked into, was genocide conducted? Genocide is, is a pretty strong word. People need to look into the meaning of the word genocide, all right? It's not just a term for something you don't like. It's one of my pet peeves when people say that's, you know, the other day, I remember a couple years ago, there was, remember when the Amazon was burning? This, this woman that I have to deal with said to me, said to me, the forest in the Amazon burning is genocide. And I was just like, oh, my God, genocide does not mean killing trees, darling. Genocide does not mean killing people, my darling. Genocide means wiping out and exterminating, trying to exterminate an entire ethnic group. That's what it means. When you accuse people of genocide, that's a very serious term that has an actual meaning. And, uh, you know, Milosevic, the U.N. said, was not guilty of genocide. He never got to stand trial. Um... Ramsey Clark, the former U.S. Attorney General who I used to work for, he was the lawyer for Milosevic, um, and he represented him in international criminal courts. There you go. That's what I'll say about Milosevic. How will Pelosi's visit affect the world economy? Well, how will Pelosi's visit affect the world economy? Well, China controls a lot of the minerals that are very valuable in cell phones and computer technology. You know, there's a lot of minerals in Africa that were worthless 20 years ago, 30 years ago. They had absolutely no value. And now those minerals are highly valuable because they're used in computer chips. And that shows you, this is what these people who are always going on about finite resources and, oh, there's limited resources, man. We've got to stop growing. Everyone's going to stay poor. They don't understand the way human beings interact with our environment is constantly changing. People aren't, you know, you know, burning charcoal to heat their homes anymore. Did you know that? You know, uh, you know, the Bronze Age, you know, we had steam engines. Now we, have, now we burn oil. The way human beings interact with their environment changes. So they're like, oh, there's limited resources. Yeah, but the way we use our resources changes, right? There's a book called The Limits to Growth that was published back in the day in the 1970s, you know, by the Club of Rome. It was called The Limits to Growth. And if you read that book, we should have run out of oil and natural gas a long time ago. Right? I, mean, I mean, it said there's only this much left, and by 1990, by 1995, we are going to be out of oil and out of gas. I can't comment on that, Marta. We're going to be out of oil, we're going to be out of gas. That's what their, what their report said. Um, but if you look at the report, um, it was wrong. Why? Because the way we interact with our environment changes. We developed hydraulic fracking. We developed deep sea drilling. We developed different means of extracting oil, different means of extracting oil, uh, natural gas. I mean, you know, the way human beings interact with their environment is constantly being reinvented. And that's what's special about human beings. They have an ability to reinvent the way they interact with their environment. So there you go. Um, now, uh, bread tube will will turn on Pelosi when they can't get more video games, said John McCarthy. I think that's brilliant. That's clever. That's hilarious. Uh, because it's true. It is absolutely true. It is totally, totally true. Um, because they control those rare earth minerals, and that is one way that China could retaliate. They could put the screws on the United States. And, you know, the same goes for uranium. You know, Russia, we get a lot of our uranium from Russia, and creating a domestic uranium industry in the United States is going to have a lot of problems so there you go. Now, the next person here is asking me, is Kuwait analogous to Ukraine, Taiwan? I don't know enough about the situation with Kuwait. I do know the United States basically gave permission to Iraq to invade Kuwait, and no one ever talks about that. But the United States actually told Iraq, if you invade Kuwait, that's fine, and then you know, used the invasion of Kuwait to justify their war. And no one ever talks about that, that, that there were remarks made by the U.S. Secretary of State that that the USA would, would basically allow it. So there you go. Um, and the last super chat that I've got here was FDR a communist. Of course he wasn't a communist. No, FDR was definitely not a communist. But he was a member of the ruling class who was in a struggle 
against fascism. There was sections of the ruling class that were looking to overthrow him and establish a fascist state. And in order to protect himself from the fascist onslaught, Roosevelt was forced to align himself with the labor movement domestically and with the, the, um, with the Soviet Union internationally. And that's what happens when there is a, a division in the ruling class. That creates an opening for the people. And the, the popular front of the 1930s that won social security and unemployment insurance, that created the Wagner Act, which solidified the right of workers to join unions, that was very much the result of Roosevelt being kind of trapped in a situation where he really had no choice. He had to align with the working class to protect him from the, the fascist threat. Um, and divisions in the ruling class create an opening for the people. That is, that is the situation there. Roosevelt was a Bonapartist. He was a member of the capitalist class who was trying to struggle for power against other sections of the capitalist class, trying to stabilize the capitalist economy amid a crisis. And that's the science of revolution in Marxism, is figuring out the divisions in the ruling class and strategically maneuvering revolutionary forces into different alliances. It was correct for the Communist Party to endorse and support Roosevelt during the 1936 elections, during the Second World War. That was correct, even though Roosevelt wasn't a communist. This is how revolutions work. Mao, you'll remember, supported Dr. Sun Yat-sen and supported the KMT. Um, you know, you'll remember that. Mao was even on the Central Committee of the KMT at one time, strategically, right? And that uh, the, 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 the art of revolution is building up revolutionary forces, entering strategic alliances, you know, and moving ahead. You don't make a revolution by just screaming revolution into the air. You don't do that, right? You know, there is a real science to revolution. And that's one thing I wish that a lot of these people that are on the Internet who like to talk about Mao, they love Mao. They just love him because he had a gun. They just love him because they see him as the symbol of violence and terror. They don't understand that Mao was a brilliant tactician and theoretician. Um, and he understood how to maneuver within Chinese society. He understood that there was going to be an uprising of the peasantry. He understood that the, the, the Chinese nation was being oppressed by British and American imperialism. He, he understood that Japan was invading and there was a fascist, you know, you know Japan and Italy and, and Germany were fascist and they were, they were at war with the West. He, he maneuvered within all of that in order to bring the Chinese Communist Party to power and raise millions of Chinese people up. That's a, a level of political brilliance you know, of understanding how the world works in order to change it, right? Um, and I wish that a lot of these people that like Mao or claim to be Maoists or whatever, I wish they would understand what Mao actually did because then you can understand how politics actually works. Unfortunately, most of the people who claim to be Maoists, they just like that he had a gun. They like the aesthetic. They like, you know, you know the fact that he called the Soviet Union revisionist or whatever. They don't, they don't understand the brilliance of who Mao really was, that Mao was a brilliant tactician, Mao was a brilliant organizer, Mao was a brilliant strategist, Mao knew he had a real psychological connection with teenagers. It's very interesting. Mao had been a high school principal at one point. Uh, he, his, the first essay he ever wrote is about the importance of physical education, not physical punishment, calm down, physical education, all right? And, uh, you know, physical education and the importance of exercising. They did group exercises. There's a tradition in China of doing group exercises at school to, to, uh, to start out the day. Um, you know, and, and the first essay Mao wrote is on the importance of, of exercising, group exercising. Uh, it's really kind of interesting. And Mao, he had this, this understanding of how young people think, how like teenagers think, how, I mean, it was, it's brilliant, right? And if you look at Mao, I mean, even the Cultural Revolution was very much teenagers who carried it out. Mao had a real understanding of, of I mean, he was a brilliant tactician. He understood China deeply. He was from the countryside. He was from a rural family. Uh, so he understood, um, he understood how to connect with, you know, most of China's population were living in the countryside at that time. The Communist Party was an urban party. It was a party that the universities, it was a party of like railroad workers' unions in the cities. But Mao was from the countryside. He knew how to connect with the people in the countryside. And he knew how to tap into the rage of the women, the Chinese women that were very brutally oppressed, had their feet bound and, and you know, were like, I mean, the way Chinese women were treated, Mao understood that. He said, women hold up half the sky. Um, Mao was, was very brilliant. He was a real political genius. Um, in our 
Center for Political Innovation Educational Manual. Uh, we actually have an essay, a speech by Mao called Talk on the Question of Philosophy. Um, and that is one of the rare examples of Mao unscripted. Mao is just freestyling, right? There's no script. You know, he's not up there talking about the ten great thises and the five great thats, the four great relationships and the five great setbacks. He's not doing that. It's not a formal Confucian-style speech. That is Mao up in front of a group of, of, of college students talking to them about philosophy and just telling them how he feels about it. And he talks about his father and his family, and he talks about the books that he read that got him interested in communism. He talks about how he really liked George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. That's Mao was a populist. In that essay, he tells about how he went out to the countryside to try and organize the peasants, and none of them would listen to him. And then he found one guy that he could play dominoes with. And he played dominoes with this guy. And the guy would, he would lose money to this guy in dominoes, and the guy would listen to him in order to, to win money when playing dominoes. I mean, it's like he tells all these stories about working with people. Uh, you know, it's like you get in a sense of who Mao really was. Mao was a, a community organizer. Mao was a populist. Mao was a, a mass kind of guy. Mao was the kind of guy who could talk to anybody. Right? I mean, I guess he, he spoke Chinese, so he could speak to anyone who spoke Chinese. You could put Mao in a room with a peasant, and he could chat it up with them. He'd have them laughing. He could talk to them. He, you know, you could put Mao in the room with a college student, with a professor. You could put Mao in the room with a trade union organizer. You could put Mao in the room with a, with a military guy. Mao knew how to relate to people. He was a people person. He was an organizer. He, was, he, he had a way of connecting with people. One of the things that I thought was amazing is almost every... Every Westerner who ever met with Mao, Edgar Snow, um, Edgar Snow talks about this, Agnes Smedley talks about this, Anna Louise Strong talks about this, is that Mao, when you met him, he was quiet, which I think is fascinating, right? They would meet him and they'd just be in awe. Wow, I'm, I'm meeting with the leader of Chinese communism himself. And he would just ask them questions. He'd say, tell me about yourself. And he would just listen. And they expected Mao to speechify at them. They said, oh, I'm about to meet the great leader, and he's going to give me a big speech, and he didn't do that. They met with Mao, and he'd say, oh, tell me about yourself. Where'd you come from? And he would just sit there silently and listen to them. And he'd say, oh, so what are you, what are you and, he, and he wouldn't talk at them. He would be silent, and people were blown away. Like, what kind of leader just, you know, they'd say, and it was because Mao was listening when you spoke. That was the art of his leadership style. Is, was knowing lots of different people, knowing different people, hearing their experiences, and processing it all in his mind so that he could make the decision. They talk about how Mao didn't speak until the end of the meeting. People would have a meeting with Mao, there'd be like 14 people there, and he would just be silent the whole time. This person would talk, that person would talk, that person would talk, and he would just sit there and nod and listen, and he was taking in every word. He was taking in every word while these people were speaking. And then at the end of the meeting, he'd get up and he'd say five or six sentences. And he'd say, all right, well, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And the five or six sentences that he would say at the very end would be like, boom. Like he had processed everything everyone said in the meeting the whole time. He had processed it all, he had thought about it, and he'd compiled it, he'd, he'd conceptualized it. Um, boom. Right? That, that was brilliant. That, that, that is a brilliant style of organizing. He organized by listening to people and by, by almost digesting their experiences. You know, Mao said that, an, uh, you know, a pear, you, you don't know what a pear tastes like until you bit into it. And Mao had this way of just kind of listening to people, processing what they are saying, digesting their experiences. It, it's, it's brilliant how to talk to everyday Americans to show them the anti-imperialist message. Well, that's how I opened the stream. Um, that's how I opened this stream, actually, is I opened it by talking about how, you know, just point out what good does it do? Why now, when so many Americans are left behind, when the economy is struggling, why would you go and provoke a new war with China right now? Talk to the people about how our government are not the patriots. The people running our government, they don't. Uh, they don't love the country. They don't love the working class. They're, they're billionaire monopolists. They're super wealthy. Um, you know, and they, the, you know, the same, the same banks and corporations that China broke free from are the same corporations that are terrorizing Illinois and Ohio and Pennsylvania. And that uh, imperialism, 
It's not just about wars overseas. It's about the domination of the world by ultra-monopolists, Wall Street and London, you know, the Silicon Valley fascists, the big four super-major oil companies that are keeping the world poor in order to stay rich, trying to stop development. You know, there's too many of us. They don't have room for us in their assembly line anymore. So now they're trying to drive down the population. Their, their solution is to degrow the planet so that they can stay in power. And um, we say the opposite. We say that we will not be killed. Life seeks to preserve itself. We will fight back. We won't be canceled. We won't be degrown. We won't be crushed. Human beings are capable of reaching a higher plane. We can get beyond fossil fuels. We can get beyond, we can get to fusion energy. We can go into outer space. We can mine asteroids. We, human beings are capable of so much great potential. The problem is the irrational profit motive. The problem is that money is in command. Profits are in command. But if we took control of the banks, factories, and industries, and the centers of economic power, the means of production, the commanding heights of the economy were organized to serve the people, and not the profits of a small, elite, wealthy few. If we had that, if we rationally organized production, we could make sure that growth was no longer held back. We could make sure that everyone had health care and education and housing. We could push humanity to even greater heights than we've seen before. We could tap into the, the, the drive of human beings to advance, right? That's what we could do. That's how you explain anti-imperialism. Right, and that that's that's what these countries have done. They've broken free and built themselves up. They've pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. China, uh, you know, the Chinese Communist Party, they made China great again. That's what they did. They they rescued it from the century of humiliation. Uh, you know, and then you know, Fidel Castro made Cuba great again, and and Stalin made Russia great again. Um, you know, and the you know, what does Ba'ath mean? The Ba'ath Party that are, uh, that runs Iraq, the Ba'ath Party that runs Syria, it means Renaissance. Renaissance or rebirth, the rebirth of the country, breaking out of the domination of foreign imperialists and monopolists and raising the people up, right? So socialism is a very optimistic message. It's not about envy. It's not about, oh, somebody else has more than I have and that makes me mad. That's not what it's about. It's about understanding that capitalism is irrational and it holds back growth and it prevents human beings from achieving their full potential and that we need to get beyond the irrational profit motive. We need to have rational human planning control the means of production. That's what socialism is all about. That's what anti-imperialism is all about. All right, folks. Well, it's been a fun late-night stream. See you all in Chicago. See you at the Deerfield Hyatt Plaza Hotel on Saturday. It's going to be a kick-ass event. It's going to be awesome, everybody. Uh, if you can't make it, um, send us a donation. Hash, uh, dollar sign CPI events on Cash App Zell Zell at CalebMoppin at gmail.com I, I can't wait to see you all there a new upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world ever since World War II U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression but the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. While the danger of a new world war still exists, and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. While the danger of a new world war still exists, and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. Good night, everybody.